from January to December. These are the updates that changed our practice in 2022. Welcome to the Carlite Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlite Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Kelly, we've got a lot to cover in this episode, so let's just get right into it. We started 2022 with a review of SAM-E. This antioxidant methyl donor is involved in the production of the three major monamines, serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. In that sense, it functions a bit like a traditional antidepressant. And one of the big takeaways from this article is that it works about as well as an antidepressant. That is based on head-to-head studies, as well as meta-analyses, where SAM-E comes up with a respectable medium effect size. SAM-E is also better tolerated than most antidepressants, particularly when it comes to sexual side effects. In one study, SAM-E successfully treated SSRI-induced sexual dysfunction when added on to an SSRI. SAM-E can be safely added to an antidepressant, and there is good reason to do so. As long as it's not an MAOI, that would not be safe. In a controlled trial, SAM-E augmented antidepressants in people who had not responded to their first trial of antidepressant. So that's people who didn't respond to a single trial, not two trials. So we can't go as far to say that SAM-E works in treatment-resistant depression, but it does augment an antidepressant. Another reason to consider SAM-E is that it has benefits in some medical conditions that often go along with depression, like HIV, liver disease, Parkinson's disease, and arthritic pain. We also found one reason to avoid SAM-E, bipolar disorder. SAM-E has been known to trigger mania, which we might expect from its monoaminergic mechanisms. And I have seen manic symptoms in practice on it. SAM-E sits with a few other natural therapies that work as well as medication. I'll add to that list light therapy, methylfolate, and St. John's wort, at least in depression. For anxiety, I would add Silexin, a lavender extract that we covered in 2021 that has a large effect size in generalized anxiety disorder. I'm basing these rough rankings on my own experience with hundreds of patients who took them, as well as on the effect sizes in the controlled trials. In psychiatry, we tend to lump all natural treatments together, but there are some that are more natural than others. Herbs like St. John's Worts and Silexin are natural to the ground, but not to the body, whereas nutrients like SAM-E and omega-3 fatty acids are already in the body. You're just taking more when you take it. SAM-E is the primary methyl donor in the body, and when we use it for treatment, we are having patients just take more of it than what they already have. In my own thinking, I lump herbal treatments more with medications than with naturals, and I keep nutrients like SAM-E and methylfolate in their own category. After all, many medications, including valproic acid and bupropion welbutrin, were derived from plant sources that had been used in herbal medicine for centuries. 
Sammy costs about $30 to $40 a month. Check out Garrett Rossi's article in our January 2022 issue for details on how to use it. In February, we took on two practice trends that have fallen behind the data, clozapine and gabapentin. Dr. Brian Miller reminded us to use clozapine in treatment-resistant schizophrenia. And we need this reminder because 30% of people with schizophrenia have the treatment-resistant type, but only 5% in the U.S. get clozapine. There is no excuse for this. Yes, psychiatrists tell me all the time that there are patients who won't be able to get the labs done, and I can almost sympathize with that, but no. When they have a meaningful recovery on clozapine, they will be able to get those labs done and may even be able to go back to school and work. In other countries, 25% of people with schizophrenia get clozapine, so there's simply no reason we can't pick up the pace in the U.S. In schizophrenia, treatment resistance means two failed, completely failed, antipsychotic trials. This could be two atypicals or typical and an atypical as long as they took a full course and did not have a meaningful response. What does that look like? It means the patient is still not able to function independently, or they keep going back to the hospital, or their family has trouble managing them because of their active psychotic symptoms. That's what failure of an antipsychotic looks like. Unfortunately, Full recovery is rare in schizophrenia. So even if they respond to an antipsychotic, they might continue to have impairments. They could have mild psychotic symptoms in the background, like voices that they don't pay attention to anymore. That would still be a response. They no longer listen to those voices, but they might also still have negative symptoms. That would still be a response because not many antipsychotics treat negative symptoms. But Dr. Miller did bring out some hope there. He has seen many patients who are able to go back to school or return to work after starting clozapine. A lot of people have told me, and I've seen it myself, that it improves negative symptoms. Dr. Miller also shared his favorite antipsychotics to try before clozapine and a few strategies to use when patients don't respond to clozapine. The other area where practice lag science is with the gabapentinoids, gabapentin, neurotin, pregabalin, lyrica, and tiagabine, gabatril. Psychiatry developed a liking for gabapentin 20 years ago, and it has not given up. It's rare to see psych patients who have not tried it, and equally rare to see psych patients who have tried its cousin, pregabalin. The paradox here is that gabapentin has only a few small trials in psychiatric disorders, mainly social anxiety disorder and cannabis and alcohol use disorders, while pregabalin Lyrica has much better evidence and is now generic. But admittedly, there is not as much at stake here as there is with the clozapine matter. So let's quote from Dr. Rajis Tampi's article in our February 2022 issue. Pregabalin has much better evidence in anxiety disorders, with eight randomized controlled trials at a dose range of 150 to 600 milligrams a day, 
involving over 2,000 patients with generalized and social anxiety disorders, including several with long-term follow-up. Pregabalin sees more use for anxiety in Europe, where it has regulatory approval in generalized anxiety disorder, while U.S. psychiatrists lean towards gabapentin. The evidence is clearly in pregabalin's favor, but gabapentin does have a tolerability advantage, with lower rates of weight gain and ataxia. From Rajesh Tampi, who chairs the Department of Psychiatry at the Cleveland Clinic in Akron. Dr. Aiken, what about that third gabapentinoid? Tiagabine, pregabalin. It barely gets a mention in this article. I almost never see tiagabine prescribed in psychiatry, and there is a reason why. Tiagabine actually got off to a running start 20 years ago. There were small pilot studies in sleep and anxiety disorders and large industry-sponsored dinner programs and promotional booths at the APA. This is when off-label promotion was less regulated. But then, a paradoxical warning brought all that to an end. Although tiagabine is an anticonvulsant, there were reports of the drug inducing seizures in people who first started it and didn't have epilepsy. So this got it a black box warning. No one wanted to trigger a seizure with an off-label drug. So the company stopped promoting it in psychiatry and we stopped using it. If you do use it, here's a tip. You may be able to avoid that seizure risk with a slow titration. Check the PDR. In March, Dr. Aiken reviewed omega-3s. Here are three takeaways. One, they work in depression, both bipolar and unipolar, with a decent effect size in the small to medium range. Two, However, they only work if you get the right ratio and dose. The product needs to have at least twice as much EPA omega-3 as DHA. Three, all supplements have problems with quality control. So check our March issue where we've listed omega-3 brands that were tested by independent labs. Dr. Aiken, it's been a year since you wrote this. Do you have any further updates? Yes, one update is that the article was one of our most popular so I believe the Carlat report has made it free online. You can get it on our website. And also I mentioned in the article that omega-3s are more likely to work in patients with inflammation like obesity or an elevated C-reactive protein. In August, a randomized controlled trial came out that updates that. Dr. Rappaport and colleagues at Mass General ran a controlled trial testing different doses of omega-3 in this population, people who were overweight and had inflammation. What they found was that a high dose of omega-3 worked best in this population, 4,000 milligrams a day, which is above the 1 to 3,000 milligram dose that we arrived at in our review for the average patient. In April, Dr. Rehan Aziz reviewed antidepressant dosing. Dr. Aziz is an associate professor of psychiatry at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical Center. Here's the take. For most antidepressants, raising the dose beyond the low to medium range does not bring more benefits in depression. The tricyclics, MAOIs, and venlafaxine are exceptions. Check out Dr. Aziz's table in our April issue where he listed those ideal dosing ranges. 
and our interview with Dr. Tam Kelly on how to use thyroid augmentation in treatment-resistant bipolar depression. In May, Dr. Steve Wyatt brought us an update on berenicilline, Chantix. We almost didn't run this piece because this smoking cessation agent was pulled from the market right before Dr. Wyatt finished it. But Ferenilacine is back on the market and in generic form. It was actually the brand that got pulled in late 2021, and it was taken off voluntarily because of contamination with nitrosamines, a carcinogen that has tainted the production of numerous medications in recent years, including ranitidine, nizatidine, and metformin. Here are two takeaways from Dr. Wyatt's piece. One, Ferenicline is about twice as effective as other smoking cessation agents, including bupropion. It even works better in depressed patients than bupropion. Two, ferenicline does not worsen mental illness. Yeah, it did have a black box warning about suicidality 10 years ago, but that has since been downgraded after studies in thousands of patients. Most notably, the Eagles trial did not find any problems. Also in the May issue was a practical guide to tricyclic antidepressants by Dr. Edmund Higgins, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Medical University of South Carolina. And he's also the co-author of a great textbook, The Neuroscience of Clinical Psychiatry. Dr. Higgins listed six reasons to use a tricyclic, including my personal favorite, prevention of depression after ECT where the combination of nortriptyline and lithium kept depression away for the long term in non-bipolar patients. And that's also a place to avoid tricyclics in bipolar disorder, as they have higher risks than most antidepressants of inducing mania. Check out his article for tips on managing side effects and how to choose the best tricyclic for most patients, your go-to should be nortriptyline, but some side effects or comorbidities might lead you to other agents. For our June-July double issue, we covered another area where practice does not line up with the data, psychotic depression. Conrad Schwartz wrote a textbook on the subject and he's one of those academicians who also sees a lot of patients, so his interview is chock full of useful pearls. Here is one. Chances are, you are missing a lot of psychotic symptoms in your depressed patients. A study of hospital units at four academic medical centers found that one in three cases of psychotic depression were not diagnosed correctly. And if you do catch it, you may not be giving the best treatment. Yes, there are good reasons to use antipsychotics, as the name implies, but Dr. Schwartz outlined a convincing case for why antipsychotics are second line to, did you guess it, ECT. And the evidence that antipsychotics actually work or that they are necessary in psychotic depression is a lot thinner than their name suggests. If you do use an antipsychotic, aim for the higher dose range like you would for schizophrenia. 
not the lower doses that we use for antidepressant augmentation. Also in June, we learned about two meds that we often turn away from because of their risks, but sometimes need to use because their benefits are unmatched. Benzodiazepines and quetiapine seroquel. Dr. Paul Riordan from Duke University reminded us that quetiapine is the only antipsychotic outside of cariprazine with evidence in bipolar mania and depression. It is the only antipsychotic with good evidence for long-term prevention in bipolar and the only one with good evidence to improve anxiety, as well as some evidence for sleep, not just sedation, but also sleep quality. Dr. Carl Salzman, a professor at Harvard and past chairman of the APA Benzodiazepine Task Force, warned us not to give in to the anti-benzo hysteria and gave a rational plan for when to use them and when to avoid them. In August, we interviewed Richard Brown on natural therapies for ADHD. Dr. Brown is a professor of psychiatry at Columbia University, and he began his career as a psychopharmacology researcher and then turned those evidence-based tools to investigate natural compounds. Dr. Brown also has a busy practice, so he was able to tell us not just what has evidence to work in ADHD, but also what he has actually seen work. Mainly, he uses natural treatments to treat comorbid problems in ADHD that stimulants don't address, like dyslexia with the racetram nootropics and working memory with American ginseng. Next, Dr. Garrett Rossi covered all the things you need to think about when antidepressants don't work, besides bipolar disorder. High on his list were obesity, vascular health, inflammation, which he measures with a high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, trauma history, and social isolation. In September, James Phelps dug up the evidence on low-dose lithium to prevent dementia. The bottom line? It's not ready for a full FDA-style rollout, but it is worth trying in select patients who are high risk for dementia and want to try something that has a chance of preventing it. For our October-November double issue, Dr. Aiken teamed up with Dr. Uma Naidu to create a dietary plan for ADHD. This article was inspired by a new randomized controlled trial that used the DASH diet to successfully improve ADHD symptoms in children. The study used a meaningful placebo. The control group was put on a sham diet. Besides the DASH study, we also have decades of research suggesting that food colorings and other artificial ingredients in food worsen ADHD as well as worsen general cognition. Dr. Nadu and I blended all this research together to create a simple dietary plan that your patients will appreciate. Dr. Nadu is a psychiatrist and director of nutritional and metabolic psychiatry at Harvard's Mass General Hospital. And Dr. Aiken also wrote a controversial piece on the benzodiazepine stimulant combo. A lot of patients take these controlled substances in combination. And you need to know this. Pharmacists are starting to scrutinize this combo more, 
and sometimes even refuse to fill it now that the DEA is cracking down on overprescriptions of these controls that took place during the COVID era, when regulations were more lax. I decided to look into this with an open mind, asking, what could go wrong here? Sure, they are uppers and downers, but do they really cancel each other out? I mean, if you take them for the right reasons, the stimulant should be a downer, calming down the hyper symptoms of ADHD, and the benzo should help lift someone up, lift someone up with panic disorder so they can get out of the house and get moving on with their lives. What I found shocked me. First, if Estimates from a large Rhode Island database are generalizable to the rest of the nation. Around 1 in 115 Americans were prescribed both a stimulant and a benzo in the last year. That's not 1 in 115 patients. That's 1 in 115 people. Second, there is zero clinical research on this combination. Zero. So I relied on basic science, animal studies, and studies in people with recreational use of the two. Bottom line, it's not a good idea to prescribe these two together. But if you do, oxazepam, serax, and on the stimulant side, methylphenidate, are the safest. On the other hand, alprazolam, Xanax, and amphetamines like Adderall and Vyvanse are the worst. And unfortunately, you guessed it, the alprazolam-amphetamine combo is the most common version that's prescribed in America. Here's another pearl. You may not be aware of how much you are prescribing them together until you start looking. I certainly wasn't, and it shocked me. And if you are using them together, the article outlines a few cases where continued use is the lesser of evils. In December, we interviewed Dr. Alan Francis, who once chaired the DSM committee and now is one of the guide's most vocal critics. Dr. Francis shared ideas for how to incorporate psychotherapy in the brief medication visit, and he took a swing at a cherished notion in psychotherapy research. You often hear that therapists have better outcomes when they follow a manual because they are less likely to drift into unproductive realms. Dr. Francis found a major hole in that research and explains why manualized psychotherapy may be counter-therapeutic for patients with complex conditions. Audio learners can hear more of Alan Francis in this podcast, Talking Therapy. The December issue also covered a disorder that responds much better to psychotherapy than to medication, trichotillomania, or compulsive hair pulling. Dr. Michael Posternak explains how to do the behavior therapy for this hair pulling and he uncovers at least one somatic therapy that might work, the antioxidant N-acetylcysteine, or NAC, which, by the way, is back on the market at Amazon. It was briefly taken off because people advertised it as a hangover cure, which the FDA did not like. Dr. Posternak is an academic psychiatrist who now works in private practice, and we always learn something new in his work. It's hard to find psychiatrists who are skilled in research and practice and who don't have a lot of industry conflicts. Our double issue for October-November featured two of them who shared practical tips on mood disorders, 
Ronald Pies on bipolar depression, and Charles DeBaptista from Stanford on treatment-resistant depression. Dr. DeBaptista worked on Stanford's SAINT protocol for TMS, which earned FDA approval last fall based on a 2022 study from his group. Let's end with that study, Dr. Aiken. I believe you crowned it the top research finding for 2022 in your daily psych feed on LinkedIn. This was a randomized controlled trial that led to FDA approval last September for Saint TMS. The Saint protocol differs from regular TMS in three important ways. One, it uses high intensity theta burst stimulation which allows the delivery of a treatment dose in three minutes rather than 20 to 45 minutes as it is with other devices. Two, St. TMS uses MRI to guide the coils in the placement of the TMS magnet. This is much more precise than using anatomical guides as we traditionally do, which they may miss the mark 30% of the time. And three, here's a big difference. Instead of giving TMS once a day for six weeks, as is normally done, Saint delivers it once an hour for only one week. And the bottom line, 79% of these patients achieved remission at some point within the first month after undergoing Saint TMS. 79% compared to 13% in the sham placebo group. That's an unusually large remission rate, so much so that it made Dr. DeBaptista suspicious, and he saw it with his own eyes. Normally, we'd expect remission rates of 20 to 30% in this population of high treatment resistance. So, is it too good to be true? We'll see in 2023 when the Saint machines start rolling out. Do you know anyone you'd like to see us interview? We're looking for those triple threats, skilled in patient care, well-versed in research, and short on industry funding. Let us know at asktheeditor at thecarlatreport.com or DM Dr. Aiken on LinkedIn. Earn CME for this episode through the link in the show notes or subscribe to the print journal online and get $30 off with the promo code PODCAST. Your support helps us keep bringing the news on all things psychiatric without industry support.